0: If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We continue our series in Acts that we'll be in really for the, a big chunk of this year. If you don't own a Bible, I want to invite you to grab uh, one of these red ones around you. Even if you do have like a digital app, I would encourage you to pick one of these up. Uh, let's go old school, um, analog here. And I think it helps to see this in the flow of the larger narrative of, of what uh, Scripture has to say to us. Um, But Acts chapter two, we had a little bit of a longer reading today, uh, but I want us to read the narrative because I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the actual narrative uh, in the earlier part of it. So I want to read it to you and then we'll discuss it here in just a moment. Um, So here are these words from Acts chapter two, starting in verse 22. Luke writes, fellow Israelites, quoting Peter, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see. And here, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I like how the sun came up right in the middle of that. It's like the crescendo, just a totally immersive, artistic uh, rendering of this text. Let's take a moment just to breathe in deeply and breathe out. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us here. Take a moment of silence. Ask your Father, who loves you, to speak to you through his word this morning, and then I'll pray for us. God, our Father, we thank you for these words of life, hard words, as the ancients used to say, make soft hearts, soft words make hard hearts. So God, would we receive these words as words of life that explain to us the reality of what it means to find life in your name and to see them as, uh, and to experience them as, as transformational. God, would you meet us by your spirit? Would you cause us to rethink everything, to place our hands, our hearts, our bodies, our identities inside of your story and there find true life? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson tells the story of uh, the 1984 launch of the Apple Macintosh computer. Now, I realized when I was preparing this that none of, most of you weren't alive in 1984, but just let me tell you the story uh, as an old person here, okay? Um, some of you remember 1984 um, as a really unique time in uh, the life of our country. We were in the midst of an ideological cold war with uh, the Soviet Union, right? The US on one side, Rocky Balboa, uh, these famous you know, kind of movies uh, representing this, representing democracy and capitalism on the one side, and on the other, the Soviet Union representing communism and socialism. And the Macintosh kind of enters into the middle of this imagination and into this war, representing a revolution for machine technology. Um, And as part of this reveal uh, of the Macintosh, which was set to launch two days after the Super Bowl in 1980, it's hard to believe, 37 years ago, almost 38 years ago, this Super Bowl ad aired, right? And and, and so as part of this reveal, Jobs, Steve Jobs, hires Ridley Scott, who was one of the more famous uh, kind of producers of that time, uh, the kind of the the mind behind Blade Runner and Alien, right? He hires Scott to produce a 60-second Super Bowl commercial that would air at the Super Bowl two days before this product's release. Now, what's important to understand is that Jobs was seeking More than a product, if you know Jobs, uh, he's famous for what uh, uh, Isaacson calls his reality distortion field, right? He had this ability to cast narratives and to tell stories that were powerful and transformational. And so Jobs was seeking more than a new product, he was seeking to craft a narrative that would reinterpret the entire industry and really upend and bring a revolution to the entire industry and to technology more generally. And so he, he, he plays off of George Orwell's recent, recently released book. I, if you haven't seen this commercial, I encourage you to go on YouTube and watch it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, this, his book, 1984. And he casts IBM as Big Brother on the big screen. And in the pivotal scene, a woman sporting Apple's iconic colors comes running through the crowd and smashes the screen with a discus. And, and, and the ad kind of closes saying something like this, Why uh, we're gonna show you why 1984 won't be like 1984, right? And so Apple, out of this, becomes the new counterculture, right? Before that, um, computers had been seen by counterculture people as like the man, right? And so what Jobs does is he re-narrates this, and he says, no, they're actually a tool for empowerment and liberation. Like, this is going to bring in uh, a new world order, essentially. Apple's bringing in a a new world order, and it becomes this cult, Following, Like up to this day, right, we all carry around what we'll call, it's, it's not in my pockets it's right there, our, our digital appendage, right? Like an extra appendage called the iPhone. Like you have those like phantom vibrations where you think your pocket's ringing all the time. Like we are so inundated by this, we forget how revolutionary this this, this new machine was. And the slogan that kind of captured the spirit of the age of Jobs and of Apple was what? we see uh, maybe with this picture here, think different right this became a slogan for an entire generation of creatives who suddenly had been, been able to identify with what became not just a product but really an identity right to, it's like if you're an apple person you're cool right if you're if you're an IBM person you're not cool right if you're if you're if you're like like it's just it's an identity it's a community it's so much more than just a product something new has happened jobs was saying that's going to reinterpret the past and in a different way invite us into a new future. And in many ways, it did transform the world. It has transformed the world. There's like pre-2007 and there's kind of post-2007, right? Like this is how we experience the world. Now, not to trivialize what's happening here in Acts chapter two, but this kind of revolution and this invitation to think different is an echo of what is happening here in Acts chapter two except it's not marketing, it's reality. If you remember last week, Bobby uh, taught on the beginning of Acts chapter two, and he he reminded us about the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost, which is a a really significant day uh, where several Jewish feasts, the Passover, tabernacles, different ones would come together, and people would come from around the world, and Jerusalem would literally swell in size, like it would triple. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered from the, uh, di- the diaspora, the scattering of Jews around the Roman Empire, they would come together to worship God as a people. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the apostles were given a supernatural ability to speak in the languages, or the, the, what they were saying was interpreted, we don't exactly know, into the indigenous languages of all of these people that are gathered, who speak different languages, come from different cultures, And they're being brought together in a reversal of Genesis chapter 11, a reversal of what was happening in in, in the scattering at Babel. Now it's all brought together in Jerusalem. And it's so crazy, it's so mind blowing that literally people think that Peter and the apostles are drunk. And so Peter, like, gathers the crowd together, stands up, and he's like, yo, yo, like, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., the bars aren't even open yet, right? Like, there's something deeper happening here. And so the question is asked by the crowd, like, what could this be? What is going on? What is happening? And so Peter gives a response to bring clarity to this moment. Now, Peter's speech is often called the first Christian sermon. It's not exactly a sermon because Peter's not their pastor and this isn't his church yet, right? Uh, I would say it's actually more like uh, my family during COVID, one of our, uh, like, during the beginning of, like, lockdown COVID, you know, like, the different phases, like, lockdown COVID, Um, we gathered um, almost every night. My wife is a big, I think I've told you guys before, my wife's a big true crime kind of person. She loves like a good crime story. Um, And so we uh, would gather uh, frequently and we started going through uh, cold case files. You guys ever watch cold case? So cold case is like they dig up like an old uh, unsolved case or a case that had been solved but maybe somebody was wrongly accused and they present fresh evidence and they re-narrate the story in the light of this new evidence and then there's some kind of like you know, uh, big uh, turn at the end. Um, or maybe um, you listen to those uh, True Crime podcasts. So here's an interesting fact about my family. I just discovered this. They're actually here. My mom and dad are here in the service. We, I, I discovered this. They kind of held out on me for a long time. Um, but apparently our family, um, extended family about marriage, is a part of a, a like a massive um, murder mystery uh, in Northern Indiana. It's actually right here. So if you've ever heard of the Prom Night Murders, the Pelley case, like a famous uh, murder mystery. My father's cousin, by marriage, was the teenager that was accused and eventually convicted of that. Like some of you are like, oh my gosh, like I grew up. Yes, like that is our family. And recently, uh, Counter Clock, the podcast, featured this story because there was apparently some fresh evidence that a uh, IU law school professor brought to the table. So you'll see billboards all around Indianapolis right now with this like Prom Night Murder podcast where they're re-kind of like litigating. This woman, this journalist is re-litigating this case on the podcast. And there's fresh evidence now. They're going back and saying, well, maybe what happened, this man's now 49 and he's been in prison for you know 30 plus years. Maybe we didn't get the whole story. And so in light of this fresh evidence, we're gonna go back and re-examine and it's gonna transform how we view this case. I mean, that, that's kind of a lot more what's happening in these speeches. They're, they're going back to the past, and they're saying, we wanna take this old story, and like a good documentary, a good docu-series, we want to walk you through this story. So there's tons of these, like dozens of these speeches in the book of Acts. So I'm just gonna give you kind of a high level what's happening in these speeches. James will hit it again next week. We'll hit several of these uh, as we get on into the book of Acts. But what I find fascinating about, uh, some of you are like, I can't even concentrate now. Like, this is blowing my mind. Okay, yeah, me too. I'm 41, just learning this about my family. There's a book that was made about it, written by one of the the family members. Whether this is a sermon or not, it is a fascinating piece of rhetoric. Like, Peter clearly did not read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. He did not take an undergrad communications or marketing class, right? Like, he doesn't begin this speech Notice, like, with this emotionally, like, trying to emotionally hook his listeners with a subtle and subversive cool story, you know? He's fairly aggressive in his negative assessment, like, you, crucify, like, you crucified Jesus, you know? Like, this is his sermon. Uh, there's a lack of, like, eloquence and sophisticated language. I mean, Peter's using uh, very, like, common vernacular. Um, he speaks in the language of the people. This is not, like, a, a philosophical treatment of things, um, like, imagine Peter, like, we often read these Bible characters not like they are. Imagine Peter, is, he's like Ron Swanson, okay? Like, Peter is just a blue-collar guy speaking very plain language. But man, the response is incredible, right? There's a, a deep conviction. 3,000 people have their lives transformed. The movement of Jesus grows by 26 times in one speech. Something is happening that we need to pay attention to. And, and what I want us to see today is that Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and the Spirit's doing all the heavy lifting. He's, he's gathering up the fragments of Israel's story, and he's reinterpreting them in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's gathering up all of these hopes and dreams and fears and longings. And he's saying, let me connect the dots and show you the reality of Jesus and how it fulfills your deepest longings. There's something new and fresh that's happening that's old and yet it's it's new and it's different. It's gonna create a different future. So we're called to live in the present in light of this new future, which is actually something that's really old. Again, he's doing like this Christopher Nolan thing with time. I love the way that N.T. Wright talks about, this is is the good news, right? I mean, in a nutshell, this is the good news that was preached throughout the book of Acts, and we have it here in summary form. And this isn't even everything. Luke says, this is just a fraction of what the actual speech contained, but we have the core of it. N.T. Wright says this, the gospel is a story that explains and a message that transforms. It's a story that explains our reality, and it's a message that transforms our reality. That's what he's doing here. He's explaining their story. He's giving a fresh interpretation of an ancient reality, and the people of God, the Jews, that have now come to fulfillment, that have reached their climax in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And this was... Necessary. He had to do this. He had to tell this story in this way. Because the message, I mean, the message is summed up. If you wanna summarize the message of the book of Acts, just look at verse 36. Very simply, here it is. Therefore, let all, this is the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts in a nutshell. He's presenting Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews. This is a message by a Jew for Jews before it's a message for anybody else. And he says this, let all of the house of Israel know with certainty, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, kyrgios, the word that they would have used in in Greco-Roman culture for the Caesar, the word in the Old Testament that would have meant Yahweh, is bringing those together, both Lord and Messiah, God's anointed. And that would have sounded just as preposterous and outrageous to them as it does to us now in the modern world. See, we look back and we say, oh, It would have been so easy to be a follower of Jesus. If you just walked with Jesus, you saw his signs and his wonders, you heard his teaching, right? Like they were conditioned because they were Jews to be expecting Jesus. They're simpletons, they're pre-enlightenment, uneducated, religiously predisposed people. But I'm here to tell you, if you are a skeptic, it was just as hard, if not harder for them to believe in Jesus as it is for you today. Like this is, like, not, again, just forgive me for using it There's no way to really analogize this. But just like, this is like that moment when Darth Vader tells Luke that he's his father. It's like, what? Like, reinterpreting everything in light of Darth Vader's my father. How would you like to get that news? Or imagine, let me just put it in Indiana language for us. Imagine if I told you Hoosiers, that Bob Knight was really a paid Purdue operative who was implanted inside IU in the 80s or 70s, whenever he started, and that all of the events surrounding his abusive players and the administrative cover-ups following, which I know are very contested, but whatever, it's all out there, it's news. um, They were careful, it was a carefully orchestrated effort by a Boilermaker cabal and it was meticulously executed in order to blow up the program from the inside out. It was like 20 years slow motion suicide by a jealous Purdue University. What seemed like one reality, in effect, is a totally different, like some of you are like, what is going on? I have no idea what's happening right now. And some of you are like, yes, I've been saying that for years. Like that's how crazy this would sound. To a Jew listening to this speech. A crucified Messiah is a it's a paradox. They don't go together. And this is what Peter's doing in this speech. He's he is Israel. He is a Jew talking to Israel about their deepest hopes, about their deepest wounds, about their sins, their fears, their longings. And it's important that we see what it meant to them before we ask what it means to us. These aren't just detached. Like we strip this of its context oftentimes and we forget that Peter's talking to a real group of people who had real longings and hopes and dreams and fears just like you do. And if we forget that, we miss an opportunity to enter in with empathy and compassion and hopefulness and conviction to the same reality that God wants us to see for ourselves. Willie Jennings in his commentary on Acts says it like this, Peter's words are about Israel in Israel, and for Israel. This is Israel speaking to Israel, calling to their own with the good news of the intensification of their election. They are God's chosen people. And he's not seeking to do away with that, to displace that, or to replace that. But he's seeking to personify it. He says, of the personification of the free grace that shaped their existence from its beginning. This is a word of grace. This is a word of comfort. It is also a word of confrontation and a word of judgment. But it's most important that we see, going back to N.T. Wright's quote, that this this gospel, this good news, is a story that explains and a message that transforms. So let's just look at it through that lens. First of all, we see it's a story that explains. right? So if you you go back and just look at this this speech, this, this sermon, whatever you wanna call it, Peter is re narrating, reinterpreting their stories as a people, as Jewish people, as God's people, God's chosen ones. And he's really doing two things in the story that help explain the reality of the world in which they live. One is Peter is centering Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and of Jewish desire. He's centering Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and as the fulfillment of Jewish desire. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Notice through this passage here, if you look at verses 22 through 31, and then beyond really uh, up to about 36, Peter talking to Jewish people enters into their cultural logic. You'll see Peter and Paul, the primary speakers in the book of Acts, do this over and over again. They enter into the cultural logic of the people that they're seeking to reach. And they empathize with their cultural narratives, their longings, their hopes, their dreams, their wounds. And and Peter enters, as a Jew, he knows this, this is his history too. He enters in and he uses their own scriptures, which they would have viewed as authoritative, right? He uses Psalm 16. He quotes extensively from Psalm 110, which is what the apostles and the early church came back to time and time again to prove and to explain the reality of Jesus to the Jews. He uses his own testimony as a Jew to explain how Jesus is David's Messiah. David's Messiah, the one that David talks about. Now in Jewish history and imagination, it's important that we don't lose David. David is so significant for Israel because he represents kind of the religious and cultural high watermark for them, right? This is the time, remember, they're in Rome. They are an oppressed minority occupying Rome, is literally killing them, It is marginalizing them. They live as diaspora Jews in a occupied reality. But to remember David is to remember when things were different, right? To remember David is to remember the high watermark of political and military and economic and cultural and spiritual power. They ran the show. So it's a significant point of pride on the one hand because this is is the guy, right? This is the one to whom God said, you will always have a descendant sitting on your throne. I will make your throne an everlasting throne. You will have a king that always sits on your throne. This is a political reality for a Jew that's a point of pride in their history, but also it's a point of wounding, right? Because now they look around and they say, there doesn't seem to be a king sitting on the throne. All those things that God said to David seem to have been falsified by Rome. Why haven't these promises come true? I don't know if you ever felt that way. God God promised this and yet my life seems to be this and they've had hundreds of years of silence since the last prophet spoke a word to them. And just imagine that, heartbreak, the ache, the longing, the wounding. And so what's so powerful here is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is connecting the dots of Israel's past. He's saying Jesus is the one that David was talking about. He brings to them a word of comfort, a word of grace. And basically what he's saying in this speech is everything in the Old Testament finds its climax and its fulfillment in Jesus. That's the summary of his message, right? Like everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of the story, right? Like everything you see in the Old Testament gets reinterpreted through the filter of Jesus, right? Right? The patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaac, Jacob, like the patriarchs and the prophets, they're all about Jesus. The land and, and the symbolism of the land, dwelling with God in peace and prosperity, all about Jesus. That's what Psalm 16 talks about dwelling in the land in safety, in the presence and the power of God. The, 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 the stories, the systems, the sacrificial system, the temple, The rituals, they're all shadows pointing forward to Jesus. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, what does Jesus do? He shows up as a Jew, right? And he performs what Israel could not perform. He is the representative of Israel, right? Going into the wilderness as Israel went into the wilderness. He's the second Adam. He's the second Moses. He's the second David. He's the second Jonah, right? Like all of these things that Jesus is doing, He's saying, God has come and he's been so gracious because what you could not do in your flesh, Jesus has come to do for you. This is the message and the good news that you don't have to earn it. You, don't, you can't earn it, right? Like God has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. So we need to be careful when we read the Bible because when, what we see in the book of Acts is they read their Bible and their Old Testament, what we call Christocentrically. Jesus being the center, Jesus being the fulfillment, and the only way any of this stuff happens is through Jesus, so we don't read David and Goliath and say, go slay your giants like David did. We say, no, Jesus is the one who came and slew the giants of sin and death and hell on our behalf, right? We don't read the Bible that way. We don't read it individualistically either as Americans because these promises are not just for me, they're for a whole group of people, whole groups of people that are being formed into a people. It's a story about Jesus. It's a story about what Jesus has done to save us. He is the hero of the story and he's reinterpreting their entire history through that lens and saying, don't miss Jesus. And a lot of people did miss Jesus, right? Like it's not true that if you were there, he's saying, look, you saw the miracles, you saw the signs, you saw the wonders, you heard the Sermon on the Mount and yet you still don't trust him. You can trust this God who is fulfilling his promises. If God did not fulfill his promises to Israel friends, Gentile friends mostly, he is not fulfilling his promises to us. But if he did, the man, he can be trusted. And that's what Peter's essentially saying. You can trust this God. He has come to live the life that you couldn't live, to die the death that you should have died, to be raised from the dead and to bring to final climax The story that you've heard from the time that you were children that's been passed down from generation to generation has now come true in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. The new world order is coming to pass right now in front of you. And it just explained everything for them. It made sense of their reality. So he centers Jesus as the fulfillment of those. And here's the other thing that he does, though. It's it's kind of harsh. It is harsh. It's true. He centers them as the listeners. Why? Well, let's say. Let's just say it this way. He decenters them as the hero of the story, and he centers them, the listeners, as co-conspirators in the murder of Jesus. You notice twice in this passage. You crucified. You'll see that pop up over and over and over again. Now, what's interesting is if this is truly Passover, and there's hundreds of thousands of people here for this Pentecost celebration. That means actually very few of them would have actually been the ones chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So he's making a more generalized point that applies to everybody. And he brings a word of confrontation and judgment. And it's important that we don't miss this. This is also part of the explanation of the world in which we live that makes sense of our reality. You see, just like us, there was a tendency within the Jewish people, particularly within The religious community, I think this is so much more true than it probably ought to be. There's a tendency for the religious community to externalize evil, to scapegoat other people and other groups, other political groups, other ideological ideological groups, other religious groups, as the real problem with the world. Now for Jews, it was primarily the Romans that were the problem with the world. But it's human nature to do this, right? It's human nature to divide the world up into good people and bad people. Now what do we assume when we divide the world up? How many of you think I'm, I'm on the wrong side of history? Not many of us. We divide the world up and we assume we're on the right side of history and that everyone else deserves condemnation. This is a temptation that goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? It's a human impulse, not just a Jewish thing. That's why there's no anti-Semitism in this passage, right? This is not about the Jewish people as an ethnic people or as just a religious people or a nation state. This is about being human. Because back in the garden, what does Adam say when God comes to hold him accountable for his sin? She made me do it. He externalizes evil in his wife, which we're still doing, by the way, to this day. So this is not just a Jewish problem, this is rampant in our modern world. For some of us, the primary problem is the secular progressive left. For others of us, the primary problem is the religious nationalist right. And the goal in this kind of frame becomes, as one politician said recently, hating the right people. That's basically how you define our our moment right now. Do you hate the right people? There's a chilling account of how this is eroding the social fabric of our country in the Atlantic recently. No Christian magazine for sure. Um, I'll put the the title slide up here. Uh, It's called The New Puritans. And it is a chilling account of the descent of us as a people into this kind of polarization and the destructive effects it has. And what Peter's doing brilliantly in this passage, he's flipping that script. He says, you think you're the good guys. You read yourself into every story on the right side of history, but you're actually the bad guys. We're all the bad guys in this story. And unless you own your devastating role in the story of Jesus's murder, you will never be healed from your guilt and your shame. You won't, you'll perpetuate it. You'll become what you hate. Even if you overthrow Rome, you will become the oppressors. So Peter's speech centers humanity, both the covenant people of God and the Roman pagan people as the focal point of resistance to God's purposes and the ones who are in need of salvation. But he says, let's start with the house of Israel first. Like, like, let's, as religious people, worry less about the secular right and left and let's worry about what's happening in here because we're often destroyed by our own idols, not those of other people. And that's why he goes to the Jewish people first. And he says, if this revolution is going to have any effect in the world there needs to be a cleansing from within and a healing from within before we start to go out and denounce the secular worldly powers and what's so encouraging here i think about this narration is that peter locates god right in the midst of their sinfulness right he says what 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 you did, verse 23, you used lawless people. You used people from outside the covenant, the lawless pagans, to nail Jesus to a cross and kill him. And though this happened, he said, he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. God's at work in the midst of this. God is not surprised by this. God's not held captive by this. He reveals, Peter does, that even though the world looks broken with injustice and with violence and oppression and sin, if you pull back the curtain on reality, what you need to see is that God is not absent in that reality, but he is working in that reality. He has planted himself right into the middle of that reality to bring about his redemptive purposes. He became human. He died the death that we should have died, taking that injustice on himself, even though he himself Nunosim was the righteous one, was the only one who didn't, to be, didn't deserve to be condemned. He takes on our identity as the unjust, corrupt generation. And he dies in our place for our sins. And he rises defeating those powers. So, yeah, this world is broken. But this world is also beautiful, and it's being made beautiful because of the finished work. Jesus. And if you find yourself in that place where this world doesn't make sense, you can't understand your own suffering. You need look no further than Jesus himself to see that there may not always be an answer that you can understand about your suffering, your trauma, the sin patterns, the compulsions that you carry in your life, in your mind, in your body. But you can see a God who entered into that suffering, who cares deeply about your suffering, who himself suffered and bore your suffering on his behalf, on your behalf, who loves you and is seeking to make all things new. And that's, I believe, that, that explanation. Jesus is the fulfillment of their hopes and longings and the reality that they are the reason that Jesus had to come in the first place because of their sin. The recognition of their guilt was the, was the message that really transformed them. And that's why they cry out in this passage, as we all do when we come to this good news. What, was, what must we do to be saved? What do we do? They're, they're cut to the heart, to the core of their being, and they say, what must we do? That's what happens when the good news lands on you, when the good news, brother, lands in you. It's like somebody drops a bomb into the living room of your home and everything just explodes coin drops into the Coke machine. That's an old analogy, but into the Coke machine. We used to have those around. And everything's different. I love the way that N.T. Wright says it. The message looks crazy and shameful when you try to fit it into any other way of looking at the world. But if you let it get inside you, if you really think about this, if you really take it in, or perhaps we should say, if you stand inside it and you look out to the world, then suddenly you see everything else in a new way, a way that makes sense of everything, startling, shocking sense, a sudden and scary clarity. This is what Paul means by the power of the good news. It does things to people, it transforms them. C.S. Lewis, who was himself a committed atheist until World War II, because of some of the events of World War II, mapping over to his own reality, has a powerful encounter with Jesus, and comes to see this good news explaining his reality, says it like this: "I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's the story that explains reality, and it's a message that transforms. When it hits them in the heart, they are changed, right? It it cuts them to the core, right? Like, and what's ironic about this is you have Peter, one who himself was cut to the heart when he betrayed Jesus, and he realized, I am the one who has betrayed Jesus into the hands of sinners, and Jesus looks at him in Luke 22 and sees him in the eye in the courtyard, and Peter realizes what he's done to Jesus, and he weeps bitterly because he sees his own sin and he repents, he turns, and he becomes the leader, now preaching the sermon as one who's been cut to the heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does when the good news lands in us, the true good news, not the political good news that we often read about or hear about, but the true story of Jesus. When it lands inside of us, the Holy Spirit personalizes it. Jesus is your hero, you are guilty, you must confess, you must repent, you must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit It's a message for the heart. It's not something that we do to ourselves, right? Like you can't cut yourself. You're cut. The Spirit just grabs you. That's what it's like to come into Christianity, not just to believe propositional facts and doctrines, although it is that, but it's to be swept up into the reality of God in a way that changes everything. It's a change of mind, right? Like the word repent literally means change your mind. Rethink everything, rethink everything. Reality. We must think, we have to reason, we have to consider the evidence, right? There's an invitation to rethink everything. And then we're invited into this new community where we're given a new family. We're gonna talk more about this next week where they're baptized, right? All of these things that they, were, they knew were familiar with, like repentance, forgiveness, the promise of God, baptism are all now reconfigured. And now they're baptized into the new stream, Jesus Christ and his people, the new reality, that's really the old reality made new. They're given forgiveness for their sins. They're given release from a guilty conscience. and given the gift of the Holy Spirit to energize them to, to move in the right direction, to leave the way of violence, the way of grinding the faces of the poor, all the things that Jesus warns them about in his, in his teaching, in his life, the way that leads to death. He says, no, come over here and I'm gonna gonna move you in that direction. I'm gonna give you the power of the spirit and you're gonna reimagine life in my kingdom as my beloved children in whom I'm well pleased. Now, let me just say this in closing. What does this have to say for us today? What does this mean for us as we think about our life in the world? As we think about our reality, we think about, This good news, does it have anything to say to us? I think this good news is still so relevant, right? This good news has changed billions of people's lives over the course of the time since the book of Acts. And in a place like this, it's astounding to me that we can still be here in a modern post-enlightenment, whatever you wanna call it, post-everything society, and still find relevance and resonance for this message because it's true, it explains our reality, and it transforms us. That's why we're here, right? Like, are we, is that, that's why we're here, right? My understanding that's why we're gathering here this morning, is everybody with me? Yeah, okay, a few of you guys are here. Okay, that's why we're here. He says, this promise is for everyone. We need to be saved, we need to be rescued, we need to be delivered, and I would argue that our world is desperately longing for a story of rescue. Our world is desperately longing for a story that explains their reality and a message that transforms their lives. Like, there's so much misunderstanding around the good news of Jesus. Like, like you sit down and talk to the average person in your workplace. What do you think about the good news of Jesus? What's the story they're gonna tell you about Jesus? It's probably not this story. It's gonna go something like this they'll tell you a gospel that includes an angry God who wants to punish humanity by imposing ancient commands on uh, vulnerable human beings, commands that are immoral, commands that are dangerous, commands that are a threat to a post-enlightenment, liberated modern society, right? And this God has gathered to himself a bunch of, this is you guys and me, a bunch of angry, intolerant, bigoted religious people who hoard all the power and go around oppressing people with their delusional vision of reality. This This is the script. God is some sort of cosmic fun police who doesn't want anybody to have any joy or delight or fun. That's not all the story that we see presented in the Bible. The true story is of God who out of his own love for the world creates true reality. He creates human beings in his image for his glory. And these human beings actively, purposefully commit treason. They rebel against their creator. They unleash idolatry and injustice in the world. But God so loved the world that he came not to condemn the world. That's John 3, 16 and 17. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world in and through Jesus Christ. God is so invested in the flourishing of this world that he loves that he became human. He died. He rose again, and he offers pardon for our treason. And he ultimately is going to renew all things. This is the good news of Jesus Jesus is both Lord and Messiah of this new world. He is pouring out his spirit to make it happen. This is the story that explains reality, explains our dignity as human beings, the beauty that we long for, the fact that we're created in the image of God, the fact that each one of you and all of your coworkers and all of your friends and everybody in the entire world, every group of people, every civilization, created in the image of God for God, to know God, to love God. That beauty, that dignity is ineradicable. You cannot Just expunge that or erase that. That's why we are created with this longing for beauty and love and transcendence and meaning. Even though everything in evolutionary biology tells us otherwise, that it's just random, that it's just chance, that it's just neurons, you were created by a personal God for a relationship with him. It also explains, explains the brokenness. Why do we see so much injustice? Why can't we seem to get along? Why is racism present and, and, and ethnocentrism pre- present in every culture in all of human history? Why do we have these things that we can't seem to get rid of? Why do we have this brokenness? It's not the political left and right. This existed before America, and this will exist long after America until Jesus comes back. There's something permanent about this. We need a better story that explains this reality. People will never be transformed by the good news of Jesus if it doesn't, reinterpret and make sense of both their beauty and their brokenness. And, and we're called to be witnesses to this. That's, that's just what I wanna say to you. We're called to be witnesses. We are called to just announce, like Peter, this good news. To say, this is beauty, this is brokenness, and this is what God's doing about that in Jesus. If we can't help that make sense for our neighbors whose marriages are on fire, who can't understand their identity. They can't understand what it means to be community. If we can't help that story make sense of their lives and offer a pathway for transformation that resonates with those longings while also addressing those wounds and those fears and those sins, we will not see transformation happen. Our stories must get caught up in the explain, in the, explain, the gospel story, which explains and transforms. I'll just close with this quote from Two of my mentors, Rich Plass and, and, and Jim Cofield, in their book, The Relational, so they say the gospel is not a self-help manual or inspiring message. It is the good news of entering into the very life of God through Christ. We are joined to God in Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This life of God recalibrates all of our life and offers us an invitation to reinterpret our story in the light of God's presence in us and with us and for us. That's why we need to bring this story into our own hearts first. We need to listen to the words of Peter. We need to repent. We need to rethink our lives. We need to allow the spirit to cut us to the heart. We need to receive the freedom of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit to be baptized, to be identified with this new family, with a new power and a new identity so that we can humbly and confidently go out and share this good news with the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus that humbles us, that frees us to be truly human, truly alive, truly flourishing. God, I pray that we would receive these words as words of life and that we would repent, that we would turn, that we would cast ourselves on you, that we would give you our greatest allegiance and loyalty and trust and we'd find that the gospel is good news that explains the reality of our lives and transforms us from the inside out. As we reflect, as we take communion, as we sing, God, I pray that you would just do that work in our hearts and our minds, our bodies. Do what we cannot do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.